0: Well, we've spent a lot of time talking about the way in which God has revealed um, his word to us through the Holy Spirit, and I'm very thankful because in the way in which God communicates his word to us by the Holy Spirit, he speaks to us in creative ways so that we can understand it, and if you're anything like me, I need it to be as simple and as clear as possible, And the Lord does that over and over again in His Word. He speaks using what we would call analogies and word pictures in such a way because He is communicating to us truth. And it's a truth that um, young children can begin to understand by the the power of the Holy Spirit, um, helping them understand it as you and I teach it. But it's also uh, got a complexity that uh, allows the, the greatest of intellects to be challenged by it. And that in itself is an amazing uh, recognition and understanding about the truth of God. That in its simplicity, children can conceive and understand it, and in the same way, intellect, intellectuals are challenged by its complexity. And yet it's always, and let me be clear, always going to be uh, clear and understandable by the power of the Holy Spirit. And I'm thankful for that because I'm not a very smart man. Um, I'm very thankful that the Lord allows me to um, to understand uh, the truths of God's word by his power. And in such ways, those analogies and metaphors really speak to our hearts. For example, we all know that uh, farming is is one of Adam's passions, and so he gets to passages of scripture, um, like for example, Matthew chapter 13, uh, about the parable of the sower, and he, he probably gets really excited in his heart because he knows um, uh, and, and thinks even possibly about those passages as he's, out, as he's out in his garden, you know, sowing seeds and pulling weeds and so on and so forth. Um, maybe uh, as an athlete, You are challenged by passages like uh, that Paul uses where he will refer back to uh, the discipline of the athlete. Like in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 9, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. As an athlete, you gravitate to that truth and therefore it's clear to you in your finite mind what God is trying to teach us through the Holy Spirit. It's no doubt through creation we are reminded uh, of simple truths like Matthew chapter 6, verse 30, that if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? And of course, um, with our passage today, the idea of construction. Construction uh, in our passage today was introduced last week. As, as Paul begins to transition from uh, kind of a, a farming agricultural metaphor into a construction metaphor. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 9, he says, For we are God's fellow workers, we are God's field, God's building. And that's a transitional verse there because he's been talking about the growth of the church and the way in which uh, Paul began to come in and he planted and Apollos watered, but God gave the what? He gave the growth, right? Well, now he's going to transition to what is most familiar to me, probably that very topic that you are tired of hearing me talk about. But listen, for for 30-something hours a week, I'm involved in the construction world, and so I get excited about preaching passages, uh, particularly ones that the Lord is... Uh, thematically pointing to construction. And so our passage today, if you go back to my title of my sermon, called Kingdom Construction, Building God's Church. And this is what we're thinking about in in respect to Paul's argument to the Corinthians. Construction has always been an interest of mine. Um, For those of you that don't know, my great-grandfather's name was Fred Jones. Fred Jones had an electrical company here in Memphis. Matter of fact, years ago, thank, thank you to Brother Terry for prompting me and, and prodding me to do some genealogy. Um, with his help, I was able to find some documents and, and actually found a picture of my great-grandfather, Fred Jones, who I knew at the very early uh, the very end of his life, he in his electrical company standing in front of an electrical truck. ...that he had and, and that he used in the service industry. Well, my great, great-grandfather, Fred Jones, passed that, down, that business down to his son-in-law, my grandfather, Cito Pelegra. And my grandfather, being a, a fireman and a part-time electrician, continued to uh, utilize that business and grow that business until he finally passed that down to my father... And my father was also a fireman and electrician. And so, of course, my dad began to train me in that as a young man. And so I was trained as a, um, as a uh, what he called a gopher. I was a professional gopher. Um, whatever he told me to go get at the truck, I would go get it. And, um, and, and through that process, I learned about the basics of electrical work. And construction just became something that I gravitated to. Now, Paul uh, isn't just speaking to construction workers here, okay? But you and I, we all understand the basics of our buildings that we live in and we dwell. We understand the aspects of the foundation that must be solid and sure. We understand that the components, even if we've never looked inside of the walls in our house, we understand that there's strong uh, materials in that wall that is holding up the strength and the load of the roof that's over our heads. It doesn't take a genius to understand that. But when you consider the Corinthians, the Corinthians were in a city with some of the most beautiful structures in all of the world. It was known and still known that as as you travel to that area of the world, you can still see the remnants of some of the most well-built, most ornate buildings in Corinth the Acropolis, the, the beautiful Corinthian columns that were literally labeled and named as the Corinthian columns based upon the way that they looked and the way that they were used throughout that area of the region. So you, you have to understand that the, the people sitting in the Corinthian church resonated with the way in which the people in Corinth built such amazing buildings. And by God's grace and the prompting of the Holy Spirit, Paul used as metaphors and analogies for us so that we might see and they might see the way in which God is building up his church. And so today I want us to look at a couple things in regards to kingdom construction, God building his church. And the first thing is the components of constructing God's church. We have to begin by defining some terms that we can understand in regards to building God's church. First of all, that is the word church. What does he mean here? Well, if you read chapter 3, starting in verse 10, you'll be reminded that Paul is talking to believers. And he's doing so in such a way that he's really uh, rebuking them. Because they are failing to build the church in the way that God intends for it to be built, so this is a this is a pastoral and a, a, a apostolic uh, rebuke or uh, stern warning for the people in Corinth because they are poorly constructing the church of God. But what does he mean by the church? Well, be reminded in verse nine. He tells them in the plural, you are God's building, okay? He's not talking about a physical structure. He's talking about the people that are God's building. And so when we talk about building the church, we are not talking about building a building. We're not talking about the structure. We're talking about the people, and the people begin with you and me individually, so if the church is going to be built in a proper way, it must begin with us as individuals being built up faithfully and, and properly. But more importantly also, it's corporately. So Paul is not talking about the six or seven steps that we must take to have a large congregation He's not giving us a church growth model physically or numerically. He's giving a church growth model spiritually. How does God want us to grow the church of God individually as human beings, as believers in Jesus Christ? And how does he want us to grow spiritually, which in turn God uses to grow us numerically? See, the temptation is is real in all of us. Maybe you grew up in a small church and maybe you just resonate to small congregations. But our cultural desire at times, our fleshly desire is, man, I just wish we had more people here. You know? I just wish our church was bigger. I wish our church had more programs or I wish our church had more things to do or had a bigger building or had its own building. And the temptation there is to fall into the cultural norms of what defines a healthy church. But what defines a healthy church and what defines a growing church is not the people in it, and, or excuse me, the, the number of people in it, but it's what's happening within the people in it. How are they growing spiritually spiritually? How are they being challenged? How are they living by faith and, and turning from sin and growing in personal holiness? These are some of the components that we're going to look at. But ultimately, above all things, the church is the people of God. Listen to what Greg Allison says in the book Sojourners and Strangers, an ecclesiological book about the doctrine of the church. And by the way, ecclesiology is just the study of the doctrine of the church, okay? Listen to this definition. He says the church is the people of God who have been saved through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ and have been incorporated into his body through baptism with the Holy Spirit. It consists, he says, of two interrelated interrelated elements. The universal church is the fellowship of all Christians that extend from the day of Pentecost until the second coming incorporating both the deceased believers who are presently in heaven and the living believers from all over the world. The universal church then becomes the second aspect, the manifestation of the universal church in the local church. So you have the universal church and you have the local church that consummate or, or, or compose the church as a whole. He continues... The church is composed of a particular people, sojourners and strangers, as Adam prayed and made note of earlier. In contrast with some common notions today, he says, it's not a building, the church is not a denominational tag, it's not a national or state church. It's not avatars worshiping together in a virtual war world, and it's not the Catholic Church, which it's claimed as which it claims to be the one church of Christ. Rather, the church's people, specifically, the church is the new covenant people of God. That is the church that Paul is referencing. Grammatically from the text in verses 16 and and seventeen, he says, "Do you not know that you all are God's temple, and the God's spirit dwells in you?" That word "you" there, that pronoun, is in the plural. So, in your West Tennessee version of the Bible, you might say, "You don't? Do you not know that y'all are God's temple, and that God's spirit dwells in y'all?" If anyone destroys God's temple God will destroy him for God's temple is holy and y'all are that temple we all are the temple of the Lord the Holy Spirit dwelling in us we are the church secondly the foundation Paul makes a a significant point in verse 10 that according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, i laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let's eat, let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Paul speaks in the very simplest and profound terms letting us know that the very foundation, the very thing in which the church is built upon is not the wisdom of the world. It's not the the psychologies and the ideologies of the world. It is literally the truth of the revelation, the living revelation of God, Jesus Christ. He himself is our foundation. And Paul laid that foundation in Corinth When he arrived there to preach the gospel and make disciples, Paul is very simple. The foundation is Jesus Christ. Paul is very simple and very direct in other aspects of his writings as well. Like, for example, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He's very direct and clear about the gospel. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. If you're unfamiliar with that passage, it is a clear declaration of the simplicity of the gospel. Paul here wants to be clear that if we are to have a proper church, if we are to be the proper church, we must have the foundation in Christ alone. Otherwise, the foundation is fragile and the house will fall. Or the foundation is not level and the house will be out of level and out of plumb. And so Paul states that his purpose in Corinth was, in verse 10, being the wise master builder, laying the foundation so that we know and understand who Christ is as the foundation and that that foundation is what we build upon. And what that means then, church, is that everything we do centers around the glory and the majesty of Christ and what he has taught us and how he has lived so that we are not tossed to and fro with Doctrines of the world and and, and worldviews that come crashing into the church as Corinth was trying or, or tempted to do. Instead, we build our foundation upon Christ, who is eternal, and therefore the church continues to stand. Be reminded that Paul or excuse me, Peter received the message that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. And what that means is the gates of hell will not prevail against the church that's built upon Christ. It will prevail against false churches. The gates of hell will prevail against against churches that we would call uh, false churches or not the true church that build their ministries upon the things of this world. They're more focused on politics. They're more focused on programs. They're more focused on theatrics and entertainment. I talked to the pastor this week who was just in very great distress and, 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 and turmoil just sharing and, and opening his heart to me about the difficulties in his ministry. And he referenced the, the difficulty in his community of... Um, of reaching the community because of other churches that are so entertainment driven. He told me a story about a, a local pastor that literally rented a hot air balloon to fly it around town to advertise his church and, and to, come, to come flying in into an event We're reminded in those situations how some churches and some ministries are constantly trying to catch the attention of their patrons with some other means than Jesus Christ. And in doing so, it may sound like this really great idea, but in those moments they're saying that Jesus Christ is not enough. That the attraction to and the satisfaction in Jesus is not enough. We have to do all these other things To build us up because the worship of Christ, the celebration of his work upon the cross, of his glorious resurrection, of his coming again, is not enough for us. But throughout the history of the church, since the inception at Pentecost, there has been nothing that has solidified the structure of the church in this world other than Jesus Christ and his word. It is what, he is what has allowed the church to stand. And so the application for us, church, is that if we are the church, is Christ the foundation of our lives individually? Is he the solid rock that we anchor ourselves to in times of trouble and difficulty? You guys saw that I put on faith life my connection to this dear family in Memphis that has seen their wife and mother and daughter abducted and now tragically believed to be dead. We did a job for the Fletchers early on when I started at at Coleman-Owen. We did an addition onto their house. And to know this woman and to hear by testimony of her faith in Christ, it encourages me in a tragic day. It encourages me to know that she clung to Christ, she taught others about Christ, that she, by confession and and, and by the fruits of, of the work of the Holy Spirit in her life, she emanated a love and a dependence upon Jesus Christ so that even in these most tragic moments, we would hope and believe that Christ was her foundation. And that encourages me. Is he your foundation? In those tragic moments, would you cling to Christ? If it's your wife or your daughter or your children, would you believe and trust in Christ alone as your salvation, as your strength, as the one who would hold you and keep you even in the greatest of difficulties and even death? He would keep you And secure your faith in salvation for all eternity. Would you rest in him? So Paul turns his attention from the foundation then to the workers. We have the, the church defined. We have the foundation defined. And now he begins to focus on the workers, the laborers. In verse 10... Paul humbly acknowledges that he is the wise master builder. He's wise in comparison to the confused culture that taught that man's wisdom made them wise. But Paul is saying, no, I'm the wise master builder because Christ has saved me, and I understand that the church must be built upon him. That makes him wise. And he calls himself the master builder, which in the Greek is the the, uh, is the is the Greek word "architekin," which is where we get the word architect or architecture. And it's it's literally implies that he is the one that that built upon the, the, the building after the foundation of Christ was laid. He is the wise master builder. And that implies that, that the church must be built following plans, following strata- making strategies, taking action steps in order for things to be followed properly. Healthy churches are not grown willy-nilly. All steps in growing a healthy church of God's people must be filtered through what Jesus Christ taught about the church what the Word of God teaches about the church, it serves as the blueprint of how we function and live as God's people. And so Paul refers to himself as the master laborer or the master builder, the architect, not the one who designed the plans, but who carried them out. The blueprints we know of the church were given through eternity by God himself. But Paul also talks about others the other laborers in this work, which is us. He's referencing, first of all, in verses 11 down, he says that I laid the foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Paul is clearly referring personally and specifically to the work of Apollos. Paul was faithful to lay the foundation and he was trusting the work of Apollos who came after him and built upon that. Apollos's work wasn't in opposition or in competition to Paul. Both heralded the cause and the glory of Christ in the church. Therefore, they are laborers working in conjunction together, following the design and the plan of the build and bringing it to fruition. So let's consider a couple truths as laborers. Number one, as laborers and workers, you and I, who continue the process of building upon the universal and the, or the, excuse me, the corporate church, starting with us as individuals, we must understand that, that the workers don't redesign or rewrite the design of the building. It's been done for us by God himself. And we at times want to rewrite church, right? Oh, it's not it's not the way that it's it's just not really working in the world today. So, we need to kind of put our own spin on it. Well, first of all, folks, it's about God's people. And regardless of what we might think, transcultural, transhistorical, we have not changed as people. So the church is going to remain Applicable from the way in which God teaches it in His Word because human beings have not changed. We are the same, we are committing the same sins, we are doing the same things throughout history, therefore, church is contextualized by the Word of God. It doesn't need to be contextualized by the culture. That means that it's applicable to us as it was applicable to the Romans and the Greeks and the Jews. We don't need to change it. We don't need to rewrite it. And secondly, workers, laborers, accomplish the task of building the structure upon what was already laid, paying careful attention, paying, carefully paying attention to the details of, ...of how we should build it. Therefore, accepting our role faithfully to build. And I think this is important. Because again, you can go on Amazon and you can go on different places... ...and you can read a lot of books about the church and and God's people... ...and and you find instructions and things. And a lot of those books have no instruction from God's word. It's all pop psychology. It's all cultural studies and sociological studies. It has nothing to do with what does the word of God say about God's people and how they should live as the church. Or corporately, how does God structure the church? How does it uh, 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 bring about its leaders and bring about its people? How does it function in holiness? I mean, look at it in our culture today. Churches corporately are being led by people that God has clearly said should not lead the church. And it's not practicing things that God has said churches should practice, like church discipline. I remember years ago, uh, an issue of church discipline made it to the commercial appeal, and the commercial appeal was looking at a case in the church about church discipline and saying it was defamation of character. And Christians were up in arms about that. You know why? Because they understood, some churches understood, the necessity of church discipline. But of course the world's not going to understand that. Because it's not socially acceptable to discipline your, your members. And so the word of God is what instructs us. We don't rewrite it. But we are entitled, or excuse me, responsible to accept the role of faithfully building the church. Not as consumers, not sitting idly by doing nothing, and not wasting the precious time that's been given to us to complete the task in our lifetimes. Church, you and I are fellow workmen. We are laborers at the construction site of God, building the church, God's people. And it starts with us accepting the role individually as, as believers in Jesus Christ. And it moves us forward to corporately working together to formulate a local congregation that is faithful to the word of God as we grow as one people. So the challenge is, first of all, as a believer in Jesus Christ, are you being faithful to grow spiritually? I mean, just simply, if the foundation is Christ and you are to build upon that, that starts on an individual level, meaning you are seeking the time to grow spiritually day by day, faithfully doing what God has called you to do in holiness according to his word. If not then you're like the labor, work, the labor workforce out in our culture today where we can't even find people to come to work. You're like, I'm just taking a day off from the Lord Jesus today. I just need a break. It's been kind of a difficult week. So I'm just, I have some sick days with Jesus, and I'm just going to take some time off today. That's not building upon the work or the foundation of Jesus Christ. We are seeking to grow day by day in holiness. But secondly, are you seeking to grow the church corporately? How much do you understand from the biblical scriptures what is ordained and and prescribed for the church? Do you understand why men are called to lead the church and not women? Do you understand the the structure of of a plurality of elders? A plurality of elders. That the function of deacons in the church are not pastors, they're deacons. Are you understanding how the the structure of, of God's people working together is to serve the community and to preach the gospel? We are first and foremost evangelizers and disciple makers in the community Helping those in need, caring for those who need to know Christ spiritually, not just meeting physical needs only. So we are God's workers built upon the foundation of Christ who has saved us and now to the materials. You know, we always encounter this issue in our in our business, and that's not my business, but Tom's business, at Coleman and Owen, we always run into people who we give an estimate to, and day after day, people want construction work done cheap and well. Well, we can make it cheap and and, and, and do it well, but the materials themselves will only last based upon the quality of those materials. So in other words... The quality of those materials may be more expensive, but they will have a longevity that really you are looking for. You just don't want to pay for those things. And so oftentimes people want to skim on the, on the actual materials themselves, and then they wonder why they didn't last but one to two to three to four years. And Paul is making a very clear statement about the materials that are used in the building of God's church in verses 12 through 15, look, at, look with me. He says, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold and silver and precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Now the metaphor here about the materials focuses on two types of materials. You have gold and silver and precious stones versus wood, hay, and straw. And the point that Paul is trying to make in this metaphor focuses on the quality of those materials. Gold and silver and precious stones are going to have more of a longevity in the testing of fire than wood, hay, and straw. He's not saying that gold can't be burned up by fire. Eventually, with enough heat, gold melts. Silver will melt. But again, he's talking about the difference between building with gold, silver, and precious stones versus being lazy and cheap and building with a lack of of quality of materials like wood, hay, and straw. What does he mean by that? Well, the, the instruction for us here is that the quality of the materials should reflect the preciousness of the foundation that has been laid. So in other words, Paul is thinking about, I think, Uh, The the beautiful, ornate buildings, as I said, in Corinth, maybe even possibly looking back to the temple and all the materials that were made in constructing the temple. Even the very uh, Old Testament uh, instruction and tradition in the book of, of Exodus, where Yahweh gives great detail to Moses about the materials and the craftsmanship that were needed to instruct the buildings of the Jews For example, like the tabernacle and then ultimately the temple. And those materials reflected worship. The preciousness of the materials reflected those whom the building was for. And it wasn't for the people. It was for the Lord. Matter of fact, if you go back into Exodus and you read the story of Israel... At Mount Sinai, the very first thing that God instructs Moses to, and the people to build is not the tabernacle. It's not the articles in the tabernacle. It's the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant held the testimony of God, the very word of God. So if anything, we could deduce from even that, that, that pattern that God was uh, ultimately heralding his word in itself as the chief component that when God uh, descended and, and rested upon the tabernacle, He didn't rest in the courtyard. He rested at the mercy seat where the Word of God was was uh, was was residing. And so, the very precious metals, the overlaying gold and, and such, was a very um, uh, it was representative of the worship of the Lord. And so, Paul is just making that point that precious metals are for a precious Lord. They're an act of our worship. But what are our materials? What do we build with? Well, Paul talks about it over and over again in these verses. It's our work. It's our labor. And when Paul uses the word work, he's talking about good works. Not good works that save us. Good works that reflect our love and our worship of the Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 2. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So God's holy materials that build his church are the good works of God's people brought about by the Holy Spirit. And those good works are, are in conjunction with obedience to his word, And the obedience and the good works flow out of an individual and flow into the corporate body, which is the composition of every believer. Therefore, we have individual and corporate responsibilities as God's laborers to be workers of good things for his glory. For example, hold your place here. Flip over not many pages to the right to Colossians chapter 3. We've referred to this passage a lot in reflecting the holiness of God and our response to his holiness as God's people. And in verse 12, he gives us example of these good works that we can accomplish. Putting off the old man as we've looked at, in verse 12 he tells us what we should put on. And these are the good works of the church. This is what builds the church on the foundation of Christ For his glory. Notice it's not about walls, it's not about ceilings, it's about the way in which we live as believers. Verse 12: Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Listen, that verse right there establishes a complete contrary uh, aspect of the world a world that is impatient, a world that is full of hate, a world that is thinking of itself more than others, and the church says, no, no, our good works are are compassion, kindness and humility, patience with other people. Keep going, verse 13, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Have gratitude. Let the work of Christ, he says, dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Folks, this is a material list for building God's church. That's all it is. Verses, verses 1 down to verse 11 are the ways in which we should not build the church because we are changed We have been transformed by the power of Christ in our lives through the work of the Holy Spirit. And verses 12 down to 17 is the materialist of how we grow as believers in Jesus Christ and how we honor him in the church. And of course, this is the message for Paul to the Corinthians back in Corinthians chapter 3, 1 Corinthians 3. This is his warning to them. If you look down, kind of skipping ahead in verse 18 of chapter 3, Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise, for the wisdom of this world is folly with God. That's Paul's rebuke of them. Why? Because that's how they were building the church. Not according to the list in in Colossians chapter 3 but according to the rebuke of Paul where he is is challenging them on their own desire to build the church up by their own wisdom and not the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the church, the foundation, the workers, and lastly the materials. And then we end with this, the finished goal. The finished goal. What is the goal of the work of the church? As we live and breathe in this world, as we seek to honor him, what is the end result? Listen, when we build a building, we have a building project where I work. Whether we're building an addition. We just finished two additions in, in this uh, last couple months. The completing building project, the purpose of it is not to just be looked at. It's to be used and to be enjoyed. Painting and art serve the function of being admired from a distance. But we build and we construct in order that the building would be used and enjoyed. Well, what is the purpose of God's people being built up? Well, it's not to sit back and take pride in our accomplishments because we've done absolutely nothing to get where we are spiritually. But instead, we exist as God's people, and we grow as God's people, the church, individually and corporately, for the glory of Christ alone. That's why we exist, and so the goal of the finished work is the glory of God. This is why we exist. Matter of fact, flip back over to uh, past uh, or before you get to Colossians, get go to Ephesians chapter four where we get the foundation of why the purpose of the church exists. Look in verse 8 of chapter 3. Circle this; these verses 8 through 11 in your, in your Bibles if you write in your Bibles. They are a beautiful definition of why we have the church. Paul writes, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for the ages in God who created all things. That mystery, church, that plan is the bringing together of the Jews and the Gentiles together in the church, the people of God. Okay? That's the mystery that was hidden for the ages in God that's now been revealed. Okay? In verse 10, so that... Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be now made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Jesus Christ our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask that you not lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Paul makes clear. That the purpose of the church is to make known to the very angels themselves the multifaceted or the manifold wisdom of God that is realized in Jesus Christ. Why would, he, why would we make known the wisdom of God to the angels? Because it's all about the glory and the praise of God. The angels are created to worship him. But the angels can't experience what we experience in the very grace of God. The redemptive work of Christ. So the church comes together as Jews and Gentiles believing in Jesus. And we make known the multifaceted wisdom of God so that the angels can go, Oh, I understand and let us worship and praise Jesus. MacArthur says it this way. The purpose of the universe is to give God glory. And that will be its ultimate reality after all evil is conquered and destroyed. The church is not an end in itself, but a means to an end. The end of glorifying God. The real drama of redemption can only be understood when we realize that the glory of God is the supreme goal of creation. The angels were created to worship and praise God. You were saved by the blood of Jesus and raised to new life in him, not to pat yourself on the back, not to bring together or come together in a community of believers, but to give God glory in all that he has done by forming the church for his own praise. That's why we are, as Paul says in verse 16 of Colossians, chapter, or excuse me, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he brings it to a close in this argument. You are the temple of God. Do you not know, he says, you are the temple of God. What happens in the temple? The worship and praise of God. But instead of going to a building to make sacrifices year by year, laying your taking your sacrifices to the priest, you are that temple. And as I said before, you all are the temple of the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit dwells within us as the church, as God's people. He uses the word temple there. He uses the, the Greek word for that's naos, the inner court, not the temple court, but the, the inner building of the, where the Holy of Holies resided, where the very presence of God dwelt. And he says, You are that Holy of Holies. You are where the Holy Spirit dwells together with Christ. Why? Because you were created to bring Him glory and worship Him forevermore. So as you are building the church, as you are growing in Christ, He gives you reason for that. Why? Because His Spirit dwells in you. And then He gives the warning. And the warning is to the Corinthians Because they are failing to do this well. And the warning is to us if we are failing to do it well. He says in verse 16 or 17, If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. What we're going to learn from the Corinthian study is that there are people in the gathered church in Corinth that do not belong to the church. Paul will tell us in chapter 5, that there is is known sin among you, do away with the sinners. He's not telling the sinners to go home and think about it. He's saying disfellowship with them. Turn them away because they don't belong to Christ. They are living in sin. This is church discipline. For the sake of church restoration. Because God is saying true believers possess the very spirit of God within them But those who destroy the church do not belong to God and therefore God will judge them. By the way, God's judgment is a glory that he possesses. He gets glory in his judgment because it reminds us of his sovereignty, of his power, of his holiness, of his hatred against sin. And so when people gather together and they wear the name of a uh, believer in Jesus Christ, where where they wear the badge as someone confessing Jesus as Lord, but they don't live in such a way that is holy, the Bible says that that day will be the day their works will be evaluated. The day is referring to the day when Jesus comes again. We may be deceived from here into that day of certain people calling themselves Christians, But we are being told that their works will be exposed in that day when Jesus Christ returns. And that fire is the agent of their testing. And all throughout the Bible, fire represents God's judgment. So therefore, those who defame the name of Christ, who call themselves people who believe in Jesus, but are truly lost and dying without him, their loss that they will suffer will be eternal judgment from God. But our loss, he says, we will suffer loss as well if we don't build the word, or excuse me, the, the Church of God appropriately. He says, God will destroy Him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. But back in verse 14, he says, if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. But if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved only as through fire. So verse 15 is not talking about unbelievers, but he is talking about people who do not faithfully grow in Christ, who do not faithfully build the church, that even these people will suffer loss, though they will be saved. What does that mean? Well, it's believed and I believe that our rewards in heaven, the praise of God, the joy in Christ, will be in conjunction with the way in which we are faithfully serving him. That somehow in the wisdom of God, how we serve faithfully will be in conjunction with the rewards that we receive, the praise that we receive from our Lord, the good, uh, well-done, good and faithful servant. How that all plays out, I'm not sure, but the Bible makes clear that rewards in heaven, although we will be there, although we will be saved and we will be secured and we will never lose our salvation, the, con- the correlation is made that we will be judged, not judged for our sin but judged for our unfaithfulness and we will stand before god and answer for those such things and so although he will secure us we will have to answer for the ways in which we were not faithful in building upon the foundation of christ so the warning for us is to be faithful be faithful to grow in christ be faithful to love his word day by day. Submitting yourself to what the word says in obedience and faith. Trusting in him to grow you in faith. Turning away from unholy things because you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And being active and, particip- and participatory in the growing of the church corporately. Caring about the way in which we as a people of God come together and corporately function in bringing praise and honor to the Lord in your service, in your dedication and faithfulness to being and gathering with us together. This is what God has deemed appropriate and worthy for his glory in his church. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the church, for the gathered believers that you have assembled here And the local church assemblies all over the world. And God, our desire is that we would be faithful to what you have done through your son. That his blood, his life was sacrificed for the redeemed. Those elected by saving grace, called out of darkness into light, brought into the church together, united in him as sons and daughters of God. Father, we are amazed by such a gracious gift that's given to us. And we want to be faithful, God, to live in such a way that we are building the church individually and corporately for your glory. God, so help us to honor you, to consider the influences of this world that could pollute the church. Like old leaven, like disease and and corruption that that seeps in and it multiplies and it grows. Help us to fight against unholiness and ungodliness in our lives and in our body of Christ. And help us to do what we've been called to do, what we've been saved to do, and what we will do for all eternity. We will make this time our gathering and our daily lives as places and and, and uh, moments and days and years of worship. That our life would exist to glorify you in all that we do and say in our community for as long as we have on this earth. And that people would see Christ and our love for him in us and they would give him praise and glory as well. And so thank you for these words of instruction and encouragement today. In Christ's name, amen. Please stand with me.